0: morning. Um, Today's reading comes from Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 29. Um, There are these Bibles. I don't think there's any left. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 29. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come... will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Good morning, everyone, and thank you, uh, Bronwyn. Um, Before I begin today, I um, I very much give thanks to the Lord for our church family um, today to come under the ministry of song and the word and prayer, to be led uh, in such a way, Uh, praise God uh, for such a work of grace that he brings to me week by week as a part of our church. So thank you, Lord, and for all those who serve. Um, last week, we mentioned the little booklet, Be Still My Soul. I'm sorry if they've run out. Uh, in two weeks' time, I should have more copies, which I'll have at the back table if you, if you um, um, would like to have that. And, and lastly, before I pray, uh, you would have noticed we're going to deal with two churches this morning. I do not deal with everything in these passages. Um, so... Uh, and considering I leave fairly quickly after church um, this morning, um, I'll give time for some questions. Um, so after i finish finished preaching, um, I will pray and then ask if there's any questions you might have. Um, and there's no problem there's not, but it may be um, the things we talk about today may very much raise questions in your mind. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and grateful today that you are a God who shines in holiness and glory and a God who comes near with a depth of love that we cannot even comprehend. Father, we thank you that you have made known to us the glory of your likeness and through your spirit we experience your presence within us each day. All praise to you. Father, our prayer this morning is that your word will achieve its purpose in us. May you produce in us, Lord, that deeper fruitfulness of faith, that we would be for your glory and please you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, My brother rang me the other day in tears, just last week. He works for a ministry that rescues children from sexual exploitation and trafficking in Asian countries. He just came out of a meeting where he was briefed on the child sex trade in a particular Asian country. And he said to me uh, last year, he said, it's estimated that uh, in one of those countries alone, 750,000 Australian men paid for children to be sexually exploited while they watched it live on their computers in their homes. I, I went with him. In my role as a chaplain, uh, I'm constantly, every week, listening to stories of the broken and the broken-hearted. In no way do I exaggerate this, I hear stories of betrayal, violence, rape, torture, abandonment, murder, rejection, incest, deception, manipulation and all manner of abuse. I constantly hear and witness physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse and spiritual abuse. I find myself constantly grieving. UNICEF reports that worldwide there are approximately 160 million children engaged in child labour. 160 million. It's horrendous. The Forgotten war in Yemen. It's killed or injured over 20,000 civilians and that number just keeps rising. We never hear about it. Now, when it comes to the utter evil and depravity that is practised in this world, the examples, although horrendous, I've given you truly only scratch the surface, don't they? But the few things I have raised before us breaks our hearts, doesn't it? It's heartbreaking. While it breaks our hearts, what do you think it does to God's heart? Have you ever considered what the evil and depravity of this world means for God? We see a fraction with finite eyes of the evil that this world participates in. Not so God. He sees everything 24 hours a day, 7 days a week throughout the history of the world. I cannot even begin to imagine the pain, the heartache, and the grief that our good and gracious Lord feels. It's not for nothing we read these words in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. When the Lord looks to our world and sees evil upon evil, it grieves him to his heart. God is in pain. Now when the Lord turns his eye to his people, his church, his bride, to us here this morning. What is he expecting to see? Certainly not the deceit and evil that he sees within the world. But tragically, that is exactly what he sees in the churches of Pergamon and Thyatira. The churches at the place of the city of Pergamon are not upholding truth. They are tolerating error. And the churches at Thyatira are not upholding holiness. They are actually tolerating evil. You'll notice that when church, Christ addresses the church of Pergamon, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. As with Christ's message to all these churches, the Lord is bringing to the church of Pergamon an aspect of a vision he gave to John in chapter 1 of himself. If you remember in chapter chapter 1, Jesus is there depicted as the glorious ancient of days with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The double-edged sword in Scripture is most often associated with judgment. So, for example, if you go to the book of Hebrews, God warns us, that his word is sharper than a double-edged sword. So much so, it pierces the depths of our hearts and lives and can actually discern between our thoughts and intentions. In other words, Jesus Christ will measure our lives against his word. And the reason why the Church of Pergamon needed to be reminded of this is they tolerating error. Let me reread to you verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Jesus is commending the church for remaining true to his name. It's a wonderful commendation. And what it means is, by and large, the Christians at the churches of Pergamon were holding true to all that Christ's name represents. So, for example, they believed that Jesus Christ is both a Lord and the Saviour of his people, and not only did they believe that, but they confessed it to be true for themselves. They held true to his name. This is especially commendable when we read that Pergamon was a place of intense satanic activity. A little bit of background might be helpful here. Pergamon had a reputation of being a great city. It was the only Roman city that was given authority to to actually um, carry out capital punishment. The emperor worship that Steve mentioned last week had its centre in Pergamon. There were three temples dedicated to the cult of the emperor. So Pergamon had this idolatrous centre. And so if you were to declare yourself as one who worships the true God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're provoking hostility. And yet Jesus commends, commends the church because in its faithfulness to the gospel, it held fast to Christ even though There was such intense, satanic activity. Then in verse 14 comes his complaint. Let me read it to you. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those... Who hold to the teaching of annihilations. The, the complaint that Christ has about his church is that rather than upholding the truth of God, they are tolerating error within the people. It actually seems like the majority of the church itself held fast to Orthodox truth. But what they're doing is they're tolerating error within the wider body of believers. Uh, we're given a clue to the nature of his false teaching in verse 14, with mention of Balaam and Balak. There, there's an Old Testament background here that I think is helpful. If you read in the Book of Numbers in the Old Testament, we read that Balaam practiced divination, right? So he talked to the spirits and was a, 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 a medium. Balak, who was a king of Moab, one of Israelite's enemies, hired him, paid him to put a curse on the people of God. In that way, Balak thought that he'll have it over God's people. The problem was, every time Balaam went to curse the tribes of Israel, he gave a blessing. (laughs) And this happened time and time again, and Balak, the king of Moab, just gave up in frustration. What happened next was despicable. Balaam not being able to curse the Israelites told King, King, uh, King Balak, if you were to send in women to tempt the Israelites to indulge in sexual immorality ma- and idolatry, then God would judge them. And this is what happened. They did it. And God's people sinned in most terrible ways. It's actually recorded in Numbers as the incident at Baal Peor where God's anger burned against his people and many people lost their lives in a plague. So in the same way there are false teachers at Pergamon who are openly advocating some type of moral compromise right, which left unchecked will lead to God's judgment. That's the point. Now we're actually not certain of who the Nicolaitans are but it seems it might be the same teaching as the Balaamites but... Whatever the case, there are false teachers in the church, and the majority are doing, saying, doing and saying nothing. This again is just an aside, but what Satan couldn't accomplish through persecution from the outside, he achieves with false teaching from the inside. At the end of a day, standing behind these false teachers was Satan himself. He is a father of lies. And his chief weapon is deception. Now while the Lord is rebuking uh, his people at the church of Pergamon, he loves them dearly. Again, he's not rebuking them to bring condemnation. He's actually His purpose is restorative. He exposes their sins so that they'll come to their senses and experience the blessing of God. And that's why in verse 16 he calls them to Repent. He calls the church to turn their hearts away from their sin. So what the church needed to do was to come together in humility and call upon the Lord Jesus to move their affections, their desires and their will from this toleration of error to begin to uphold the truth. Uh, friends, this is, is a wording season for us today. It is getting harder and harder for the church to uphold truth and refute error. One of the reasons is conditionally, rather culturally, we are being conditioned to view tolerance as the greatest moral virtue of modern times. And to view intolerance as the greatest vice of modern times. Let me give you an example. If a church embraces secular values and ethics that contradict the word of God, the world praises that church as being very tolerant and a force for good. However, if a church rejects the secular ethics or values of this world, It is condemned as being intolerant and an instrument of harm. I'm not underestimating what I'm about to say. There is an increasing call and pressure to punish and legislate against institutions, including the church, that the world judges as intolerant. Yesterday, I was reading in the Australian newspaper an article about the head of a teacher's union and she gave a blistering attack upon Christian schools. And this is what she said. How can we give public money to those who do not hold public values? And she gave examples of gender and sexuality as those values which Christian schools don't hold. This is a significant issue that we are all facing. Where does that leave us here at the branch? We are to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My sisters and brothers, with deep humility, abounding grace, and much courtesy, we must uphold the truth that has been revealed to us by God in His Word, and with great love and respect, refute error. We're to do that no matter how much we suffer the wrath of the evil one. For example, While the world declares there are many ways to God, we need to uphold the truth that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Or when the world declares that death is an acceptable therapy for unwanted pregnancy, we need to uphold the truth that God alone takes and gives life. When the world declares that death is an acceptable therapy to relieve the loss of control that is experienced when one is confronted with a terminal illness, again, with the deepest of humility, with love and grace and much courtesy, we are called to uphold the truth that God ordains our days, not us. Or when the world declares that homosexual sex is consistent with God's will, we need to uphold the truth that all sexual immorality is against God's will. Now the problem we face is that when we uphold truth and refute error, the world will and is raging against us. You intolerant bigots. But again, while it's imperative we uphold truth with humility and love and courtesy, uphold the truth we must. And when we suffer loss, which we will, we are to do so patiently, and with much grace. Because our reward is not in this world. It's in the world to come. In verse 17, the Lord Jesus promises that all who hear what the Spirit says will receive hidden manna. And they're given a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows. Well, what is this? I think... It seems to me, the best I can understand, is hidden manner seems to symbolise, with the rest of scripture, the bread of life that's in Christ. Now why is it hidden? Because the world doesn't see it. But for those who uphold the truth of the gospel, they will feed from the true bread of heaven for all eternity and experience life. While we will suffer loss in this world, we will be fully satisfied in the next because the Lord Jesus Christ will meet every need. We may lack now, but not for eternity. That's the encouragement that God's bringing to the church of Pergamon and indeed to us. The white stone, it's referring to something that the people of Pergamon would be very familiar with. In the city of Pergamon, There were many, many temples, and and many of them were made out of black granite. And sunken into the black granite were white stones. And on those stones were the names of those who contributed to the building of the temples. I think what Jesus is saying to the Church of Pergamon is that God will give them a stone, but it will be engraved with the name of Christ. And again, the name is hidden known only to those who receive him. What Jesus is promising to his people is that those who uphold the glorious truth of God will bear the name of Christ for all eternity. Please don't misunderstand what God is saying here. What he is promising is nothing short of the spectacular glory, blessing and privilege of eternal life. Uh, let's turn to the message of Christ to the church at Thyatira, and I'm including them together because they're very similar. Whereas the churches at Pergamon were tolerating error, the churches at Thyatira were tolerating evil. In verse 18, Jesus reminds the church that his eyes are like burning fire and his feet like burnished bronze. What this vision brings to the church is a vision that Jesus is almighty. He is Lord of all. Burnished bronze is the strongest of all. This is the almighty God. And his eyes that blaze like fire, these are the eyes that see everything and make judgment. The church needs to be reminded of this because according to verse 20, we read that they're tolerating the evil woman Jezebel. The thing about Jezebel is that she claims to speak with the authority of God. She's leading Christians into the sins of both idolatry and immorality. It's clear that holiness was a problem at the church of Thyatira. You may have noticed in the list of commendations in verse 19, there's love in the church, there's faith in their service, and there's even patient endurance and praise God for that but what's missing there's no holiness see what Christ is revealing to us in these verses is that holiness along with love for God and each other along with sacrifice and truth holiness is an indispensable mark of his church but I reckon the question we need to ask is, why holiness? In Ephesians chapter one verse four, one of God's purposes we're reading freed us from sin's penalty and power, which is amazing. We've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. One of the purposes is that we will be, be, be holy. Paul says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of a world. That we should be holy and blameless before God. That we should be holy before the presence of God. What that tells us is personal holiness is not an end in itself. The end of holiness is not is that the end is not that we would live good lives. The end of holiness is the glory of God. When you come to Ephesians chapter 3, I think we come to the most astounding chapters in the all of Scripture because this truth of our wholeness before God is expanded. Paul makes the astounding revelation, I think it's astounding, that God has established his church, not primarily that we will know God's goodness, although most certainly that we would, but primarily that we would be a living testimony of his wisdom. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, and I'll stop halfway through. But please listen on. Paul speaking. To me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of a mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So basically he's saying... I'm the least of all apostles. God's given me this incredible grace of a ministry of the gospel to bring to light the good things of God that's been hidden. In verse 10 comes a purpose clause. Listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Is that not incredible? Paul is saying that God has given to him a ministry to preach the gospel so that when people come to faith, those gathered people, the church, will be a living vision of his wisdom. Who is the audience of this wisdom? It's not the world. It's the spiritual rulers and powers in the heavenly realms. He's saying that when the angels and the demons and the heavenly hosts look to God's redeemed people, when they look to us and they've seen us, people who have been broken and sinful and depraved, reflecting the love and the holiness and the truth of God, they have no choice. But to confess how wise, how powerful, how unreachable is the living God. Look at those broken people. They were once evil and depraved, full of sin. They now look like the holiness of God. How wise is God. That is what is happening in the heavenly realms. That's the end of holiness. I'll give a brief illustration. I wasn't planning to. I've had a very difficult week, but it's been a wonderful highlight. There is someone who I came in contact with this week who I would describe as the epitome of brokenness. I won't go into detail, but if you were to ask me any aspect of his life, I would say broken. He looked so broken. He said to me he said, "Jason, I'm frightened." So what are you frightened of? Don't want to die." I asked him, "Would you like me to share with you how Jesus can counter your fears? This particular person has faith, not saving faith, but he has this belief in God, and Jesus was welcomed such a conversation. The next day I came back to him and he said, I called out to Jesus last night. He came to my bed. I felt a warmth that i have never had in my life and I slept like i never slept before. Jason, I've forgiven everyone who's hurt me in my past. And I know now God has forgiven me for what I've done. I've put my faith in him. The next day I come, and we continue in the word and prayer. And the next day I come, and he says to me, I'm not frightened anymore because I know Jesus died and rose again for me, and I know where I'm going. What are the angels and the demons looking when they see that? They are seeing the wisdom of God, the power of the gospel. They have seen somebody who's been broken all their lives nearly at the end of their days looking like God in forgiveness and life. My friends, can you see that rather than grieving God's heart, the church is to be an object of his pleasure and a vision of his infinite glory. It is little wonder that Christ calls the church at Pergamon and Thyatira to turn their hearts away from their toleration of error and evil. How can we fulfil such a divine purpose here? We cannot, apart from Christ. In the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus Christ has a heavenly ministry, While his work on earth is finished, his ministry in heaven is ongoing. He cried out, it is finished on the cross, but it doesn't mean Christ isn't ministering today. Uh, The book of Hebrews tells us that his one sacrifice for all, made holy all whom he is making holy. So, He who makes us holy, that is, cleanses from sin, is at the same time making us holy. Which means, if you, like I, see your need to deepen in holiness of life today, and if you, like I, see my need to uphold truth, as we ought to, then we need to humble ourselves and call upon Christ. Let me share with you a prayer I constantly pray for myself. Lord Jesus, when I rest my head on the pillow this evening, may I have pleased you today. May every thought, every word, every affection of my heart, every action of my body be holy to you. Lord Jesus, please do for me what I cannot do for myself. I pray that prayer because I know that Christ has to promise that, promise to answer it. Growth in holiness does not come through trying harder. Believe me, I tried for 50 years and it doesn't work. It comes through Christ. So my encouragement for us is to come to the Lord Jesus with a sincere and tender heart and in fullness of faith believe that he who made you holy has promised to make you holy. Look to him as the one who will lead us to uphold truth with care and humility and uphold holiness in the power of the Spirit. We must hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Truth and holiness matter to the Lord. Uh, Let us keep turning our hearts away from error and evil and set our affections, our wills and our desires upon the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful today that we come to your presence with confidence and boldness, not in ourselves, but in your dear and risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, so, we are so grateful that you have cleansed from the presence of our Father all our sin and that we come to you now as your people. Father, our heart's desire is you would make our hearts ever more tender to turn away from all that displeases you. Oh, give to us a boldness to uphold the truth, but with much humility and courtesy and love that we truly will be for your glory and bear your wisdom for your name's sake. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.